Hey, Holly here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share some information with you about some workshops that we're running. Here at Ashore Product Science, we love to teach workshops, both public workshops, private workshops at companies, and even an online workshop for people who can't come to see us in person. If you're interested in learning how to identify the right products and features to build and how to develop the support to do so with the product science method, come and join us. You can learn more at ashoreproductscience.com workshops. Hi, and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, my guest is Nir Ayal, author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Nir Ayal writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review dubbed Nir the prophet of habit-forming technology. He founded two tech companies since 2003 and has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hassel Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, Nir's writing has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, and Psychology Today. I'm so excited to share this interview with Nir Ayal. I hope you enjoy it. So, Nir, I'm so excited to have you on the Product Science Podcast. Um, I imagine a lot of our listeners will already be familiar with your work, but in case they're not, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, Hooked and how you came to write a book about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. So I basically wrote the book I was looking for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I uh, started uh, two tech companies. And when the last one was acquired, I had some time on my hands and I had this hypothesis that the companies of the future that really make an impact in the world would be the ones who mastered habit. And the reason I had this hypothesis was that, you know, I was looking at what was happening to interfaces, that interfaces were going from you know, big honking desktop screens to smaller laptops to mobile phones, which were even smaller uh, screen interfaces to then wearable devices like, you know, watches, smartwatches, which are even smaller. And now we've reached a point where the, the screen interface has all but disappeared. Right? When you think about, you know, Amazon Echo uh, or, or the, the Google Home, there is no screen interface anymore. And so what that meant, what I saw happening, and this was back in 2012 or so, mm -hmm. what I, the, the hypothesis I had is that if you don't create a customer habit, then in a customer's mind, you might as well not even exist because there just isn't the real estate anymore to trigger people with what's called an external trigger with a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, something on their screen that tells them what to do next. They have to remember. So if you're not uh, you know, the, the, the first to mind skill on the Amazon Echo or even on a, on a uh, smartphone, if you're not the first app on their home screen page, if you're on page, you know, five, six, seven, that they have to swipe through to get to, then they're going to forget about you. You might as well not even exist. Mm -hmm. And so it became imperative in my mind at that point to figure out how to form customer habits. And, and I, I believe that the, the, the whole, um, you know, the, the promise of this is that we can make the kind of products that people want to use Twitter and Google and the, the gaming companies because mm -hmm. they've known these techniques for ages. Uh, I really, I, I didn't think it was fair these companies, you know, could keep these techniques to themselves. Uh, I really wanted to bring it out to everyone else. And the idea being that, you know, that if you think about it, most products out there don't use this, these techniques anywhere near enough. Uh, you right. know, today we talk about products 
being you know almost too good and, and some people even call it addictive uh I, that's clearly not my goal in writing the book is to make anything addictive but you know the real problem is that most products out there they don't suck us in uh the way facebook and instagram and, and google might no, no no they just plain old suck if you think about you know your your, your yeah. local public services or uh lo- small businesses or even the kind of software we're forced to use in the enterprise these products are horrible, right? They're mm-hmm. terrible. And so we could use that these products would be way better if the designers who were making them knew how, the, the, the principles of behavioral design in order to make the kind of products that are sticky and engaging and that people actually want to engage with uh, on their own volition, not because they feel like they're forced to. Uh, yeah. so that's really why I wrote Hooked. That's awesome. That is music to my ears because I am uh, you know, very driven by creating products that people want to use and, and very against conversations where we talk about trying to force people to use things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, uh, I always kind of like to go a little bit, a little bit further back. Um, I'm curious if you could tell us a little more about how your experiences with the startups that you were doing um, encountered this either habit formation or lack of habit formation, you know, cause the book wasn't out yet. You hadn't written it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I will tell you that we spent a lot of our time banging our heads against the wall, trying to figure out why people weren't using our products. <laughs> uh huh. You know, it's, it sounds, uh, you know, I make it sound easy in the book, but I've been in the trenches, right. I've helped start two companies. It is so hard to change people's behavior, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> people are not puppets on a string. And so it's, it's, it, you really have to understand what you're doing if you're going to change people's behavior. It, you know, even when you're changing it, and this is the only way to do it ethically, is to change people's behaviors in ways that they want, right? The, the big mm-hmm. reason I wrote this book is because I believe that we can build healthy habits in our customers' lives. We can use these techniques. You know, it doesn't have to be just used for frivolity like you know, video games and social networks. We can use this very same psychology to help people exercise more or save money or eat healthier or be more productive at work. You know, behaviors that we want to do, but for lack of good product design, for lack of good behavioral design, people don't do. And so that's the real promise of these techniques is that we can help people do the things they really want to do if they only had a product designed in, in, a, in a way that encouraged them uh, to do those behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. So um, walk us through. How, uh, how did they do that? How do we get somebody to do the thing we want them to do? How do you get someone hooked? So it starts from, from understanding what they themselves want to do. So just to be very clear on the ethics perspective of this, there's, there's two types of manipulation. Uh, manipulation isn't always, you know, the, the word sounds kind of sinister, but, you know, we in fact pay for the privilege of being manipulated. If you think about it in many circumstances, you know, if you go to a movie theater, you know that uh, that's just flickering light on a screen. That's not reality, right? That's not real people up there. And even the people who are portrayed up there are actors, right? Brad Pitt isn't actually feeling those things and saying those lines from his heart. He's paid to, to trick you into thinking that, uh, that that's really happening because you pay for the privilege to have your emotions manipulated. So, you know, people, it's, there's nothing necessarily unethical with manipulation. What, what we should do is, is couch them into two sides of the ethical spectrum. So one form is persuasion, which is helping people do things they want to do. The opposite of persuasion is coercion, which is getting people to do things they don't want to do. So coercion is never ethical. We should never do that. We should never get people to do anything they would ever regret. So the first thing is to make sure that we are helping people do things they themselves want to do. Okay. So once we know that, uh, we construct into the user experience, into the flow of our product design, we need to make sure that we have built in a hook. 
Now, a hook is this experience that connects the user's problem with your product with enough frequency to form a habit. And every hook has these four basic steps. It starts with a trigger to an action to a reward and finally an investment. So I'll, I'll walk you through a very quick example just to kind of illustrate these four points. So there are two types of triggers. Uh, the first kind is called the external trigger. An external trigger is something in our environment that prompts us to action, that tells us what to do next. It's a ping, a ding, a ring, something that gives you information for what to do next. So let's say, uh, what's a habit-forming product that, that you use a lot? What, 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 give me an example. I use Trello a lot. Trello. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So let, let's try Trello. I've never done Trello here, but let's see if Trello uh, is, it, it meets the requirements. Let's see of if a, we can make that work. Yeah. <laughs> let's see if we can make it work. So what would be the external trigger for Trello? What would be a, a, a notification, a ping, a ding, something that tells you what to do next with Trello? Um, well, I definitely get, uh, emails when somebody that I'm working with on a team has updated something that we were working on together. Perfect. So you get that notification that gives you some piece of information. It tells you log into the site because something just happened. So that's the external trigger. The action is the behavior to get a reward. And that simple behavior is to log in, right? To click that button and mm -hmm. see your Trello board. That's the action. Very simple. It could be something, uh, a quick search on Google. It could be pushing the play button on YouTube. It could be scrolling the feed on Instagram. The simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. Now comes the reward phase, and it's typically a variable reward. There's some kind of uncertainty, some kind of mystery, some kind of unknown, which keeps you engaged. And this comes from the Skinnerian school of, of intermittent reinforcement. So Skinner took these pigeons uh, about 50, 60 years ago, and he put them in a little box, and he gave them a disc to peck on. And every time they would peck on the disc, they would receive a reward. They would get a little food pellet. And so uh, very quickly, Skinner found that he could train these pigeons to peck at the disc uh, on, on a fixed schedule. So he would give the, the pellet, the pigeon would peck at the disc and receive the reward, right? So that would happen every time. That's called operant conditioning. Great. The, but then Skinner had this little problem. You see, Skinner started to run out of these food pellets. Literally, he didn't have enough in his pocket. And so he started to give the reward every once in a while. So sometime the pigeon would peck at the disc and no reward would come out. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And to Skinner's amazement, what he found was that the rate of response, the number of times that these pigeons pecked at the disc increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. So we find variable rewards in all sorts of things, both online and offline. If you think about you know, what makes a slot machine uh, so engaging, uh, if not addictive to some people, is the variability, right? You're uncertain of what you're going to win. Now, we see the same exact mechanic online. When you scroll your Facebook feed, when you uh, are looking through videos on YouTube, uh, you, know, you, you have this mechanic of a variable reward keeping you engaged. Now, it sounds sinister to some people. It's, it's absolutely not. I mean, it's uh, it, what makes a book uh, interesting, and you want to get to the end because you want to figure out how things are going are gonna to play out, variable rewards. If you want to watch a, 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 a football game or you know, a basketball game, and what keeps you engaged? The uncertainty of who's going to win, variable rewards. If you go on a date and you find this person interesting and you want to know more about them and they intrigue you, variable rewards. Variable rewards are built into anything that is engaging. So back to our Trello example, the variable reward is when you take that key action, now there's this uncertainty, there's this mystery about what you might find.
right? Is a project coming along? Is it, is it behind schedule? What does the note say? There's all this variability around what you might find when you engage with Trello. And that's part of your motivation to, to, to check the site and start engaging with it. And then finally, the last step of the hook is the investment phase. And this is where people put something into the product to improve it with use. Okay, it makes it better and better. If we think about most products, uh, in the physical world, and this is why I love working in digital so much, you know, working with things that are made out of bits as opposed to things made out of atoms, is that everything in the physical world depreciates with wear and tear, right? Uh, your, you know, your desk, your chair, your clothing, everything in the physical world, the more you use it, the less valuable it becomes. But habit-forming products have this amazing ability to appreciate in value. They should get better and better with use. And they do this through this principle of stored value. So the more you invest with data, content, followers, reputation, skill, the more you put into the product, the more valuable it should become for you. So on Trello, for example, when you make a new uh, item on your Trello board, when you communicate with somebody and send them a message, uh, anytime you do any of those actions on, on Instagram, it might be liking something. On Facebook, it might be friending or commenting. Uh, you know, any of those actions that give the company data, uh, followers, reputation, skill, any of these things increase the value of the product over time. And they also load the next trigger, right? So if you add a new task to your Trello board, and somebody comments on that item, you're going to load the next trigger and send yourself a new notification when somebody acts, acts on that uh, item, right? So you've loaded the next trigger, prompting you through the hook once again, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, this leads me to the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product. Eventually, when you've really formed a habit is when you no longer need those external triggers at all, right? So when you can take someone from needing an external trigger, one of these notifications of paying a ding a ring, to no longer needing the external trigger, to relying upon an internal trigger, that's the promised land. That's when you know you've formed a habit. And the way to do that is by attaching your product's use to what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is typically a negative valence state. It's, a, it's an emotional state that feels uncomfortable, that to get relief, we use some kind of product, right? So when we're feeling lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check Reddit or the news or stock prices or sports scores, right? All of these things cater to uncomfortable sensations. By the way, all human behavior, everything you do is motivated by the need to escape discomfort. All products, there is nobody out there. There is no product that is used for any other reason other than to escape psychological or physical discomfort, okay? So that's the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product is to no longer need the spammy uh, messaging, the expensive advertising, but to have people use the product on their own. Every time they are internally triggered, they automatically use your product and service. So that's it. That's the 30,000 foot view uh, of, of the hooked model, which is, you know, I go into a lot more depth in the book as well. And mm -hmm. we can dive into more here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that, that is perfect. And, um, and the, the truth is the reason why Trello is my answer is because uh, Trello is that habit for me now. And I don't know how many other Trello users, well, avid Trello users, I'm sure say this, 
Um, I use it because uh, it gets the things off my mind, right? So like, I'm like, yeah. oh, I have all these things like this list in my mind. I have to, I can't forget to do that. And I can't forget to do that. And I can't forget to do that. And then I'm like, nope, I'm going to put it all in Trello. And then I'm going to forget about it until I come back to work tomorrow. Beautiful. So that's amazing. Okay. So now you no longer require the external trigger telling you to come back. Now, every time you feel the fear of forgetting a task, boom, you're on Trello. Exactly. And this is an amazing competitive advantage. You see, because if there's another product out there, that's even better than Trello. It almost doesn't matter because it's such a competitive moat to have a customer habit that even when a better product or service comes along, I know that in the product design community, you know, many people are taught, and I was definitely told this, uh, just make the best product, right? The best product wins. That's mm -hmm. bullshit. Not I true. I totally agree. The best product does not necessarily win. It's the product that captures the monopoly of the mind, the thing that we turn to first with little or no conscious thought that's many times the product that captures the market. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I've found myself uh, telling people more lately. I, you know, I, I think I'm sort of a dyed in the wool kind of product person, but I'll tell people, look, you know, it saddens me to say this, but it's not always the best product that wins. It, there's nope. so many other things. <laughs> I mean, look at, look at Google, right? You know, if I, many times I give talks and I'll, I'll speak in front of 500 people and I'll say, okay, let me, let me prove the power of habits to you when it comes to a product design perspective. And I say, you know, how many people in this room have searched with Google in the past 24 hours? Almost every hand will go up. Then I say, okay, how many of you have searched with the number two search engine? How many of you searched with Bing in the past 24 hours? And maybe like one or two hands will go up. Typically, it's a former Microsoft employee who's yep. hand is up. And, and, and so I say, well, why is that? Well, you know, why does the number two search engine fall so far behind? You know, why is Google, why do people just Google things? Is it because the product is better? Did, you know, those geniuses in Mountain View, California have a, a product that no one else can replicate? No, that's rubbish. In fact, it, they've done studies where they've had a side-by-side -side comparison of the search results of Google versus Bing. And when you strip out the branding and people don't know which search results they're looking at, it's actually a 50-50 preference split. People can't tell the difference in terms of which one they prefer. So the only wow. reason people keep searching with Google is because it's a habit. They don't even ask themselves. When's the last time you searched on Google? And before you did, you said, hmm, is Google the best search engine? No, we don't even ask ourselves. We just do it purely out of habit with little or no conscious thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's something else you said in there that I just want to pick on. So I, uh, I have a chemistry or chemical engineering background and I noticed, um, that you talked about atoms and negative valence states. And I'm just super curious, like, do you, did, do you have a love for chemistry? How did you end up talking <laughs> about negative valence states? <laughs> Actually, we use the same term in psychology. Uh, uh, when it comes to emotions, we call them negative valence and positive valence emotions. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're I, actually smart. You're, yeah, that's a hard science. That's like <laughs> real smart. I'm just, I'm just taking it over here. <laughs> no, you're not. You're just, you know, it's, it's uh, like with everything else, it, there's just what has gotten the credit so far and, <laughs> and, what, and what hasn't. But truthfully, understanding psychology and, and behavioral economics, I mean, that is um, so, so valuable. Um, so I guess the other thing that I was thinking about is, um, how, how do product managers who are trying to, um, build the hooked model into their products, how do they make the case for it? Cause a lot of times, um, I, I know some, you know, mid-career product managers occasionally struggle with, um, 
being told to do certain things and, um, you know, maybe needing some help with the pushback. Um, and I'm curious, um, how do you make the business case? Like, what are the best, uh, best ways that people do that? Yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, things are definitely changing, which is great. You know, when I first started out, there was this perception that, uh, uh, you know, just build the best product, right? Like, and, 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 and more so this was, you know, when I got started in the industry, designers didn't play the role they play today. Designers today have a seat in the table, but when I got started, that was definitely not the case. I mean, designers were considered, you know, like if you talk to the, the, the management of a company, typically a designer was just seen as like a graphic designer. There was no, really no conception about the power of design when it comes to building you know, great product experiences, you need great designers. But at the time, you know, design was like an afterthought. Uh, and so we were really fighting an uphill battle trying to convince people that it's not good enough just to have the best technology, that you need more than that. You under, need to understand what makes people tick so that you can understand how to make them click. Uh, and so that, that's become much, thankfully, it's become a much easier argument to, to win these days when you look at companies uh, who make products that, you know, you look at on the surface, you're like, big deal. I don't get it, right? Like, think about the first time you saw Facebook or the first time you saw Instagram, uh, or the first time you saw Pinterest, like, eh, big deal. Uh, or Slack, right? Again, another example, right? Eh, okay, big deal. But these companies really understand consumer psychology. I mean, it's no, you know, it's no coincidence that uh, Kevin Systrom, the founder of Instagram, was a symbolic systems major at Stanford. He, you know, symbolic systems is this intersection of computer science and psychology. Mark Zuckerberg, everybody knows that Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard uh, and that he was a computer science major before he dropped out. Nobody knows that he was also a co-major in psychology, right? So this is not a coincidence. These folks understand what makes people tick uh, better than people understand themselves. And they have psychologists on staff now, they have behavioral designers on staff, and they use these techniques uh, to, to make their products more engaging. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, that, I mean, that's a big part of, you know, why I wrote this book. And so the, the easiest thing you can do, and I'm not just plugging my book, but, but the easiest thing you can do is don't make the case yourself, right? Like mm -hmm. you know, the, the book is super cheap. Uh, I don't even care if you go pirate it somewhere, just get your hands on it and, and show your manager, right? Show your colleagues that, that there's a, there's a principle here. There's a model. So, you know, what, what, what really bugged me at the past two companies that I founded and, and that I see still is the predominant way of building product today is, you know, there's this age old question of what do we build? Uh, you know, at, at my former company, we bought the lean startup methodology hook, line and sinker. And I, I'm still an advocate for lean startup because it's, it's way better than the way we used to do things right with, with uh, flow charts and, and you know, I'm a waterfall charts, sorry. Uh, where we would just, you know, stick a bunch of engineers in a room and like say, hey, go build something. And then like six months later, they'd bring something out to market and, then, you know, nine times out of 10, it, it flopped. Well, today we do customer development. We use lean startup methodologies. We talk to our customers. Awesome. But we still have this huge problem of deciding what do we build, right? If you think about the build, measure, learn loop of, you know, you, you build something, you measure this impact and you learn from it and you continue the cycle, the measuring and the learning is easy. That's fun. The hard part is knowing what do we build? So most companies uh, answer this question in a few ways, right? Some companies, well, most companies still to this day, the, the answer to the question, what do we build is go ask the hippo. You know who the hippo is? The highest paid person's opinion? Oh, yes. <laughs> right? So, mm -hmm. And that's how most companies do it, right? Like, hey, we've got, you know, 16,000 feature requests. Which one do we actually build? Uh, okay, well, what does the boss think? And then that's what we build. Okay, well, that's obviously dumb. Uh, another, another way we do it is, you know, okay, we're really progressive here. We do customer interviews. We do customer development. Terrific. 
well, which customers do you listen to? Do you listen to the loudest customers? Like who should we listen to? So that's also suboptimal. You still have to do that, but I think that's not enough. You have to do that along with having some kind of framework, some kind of model to decide what do we build next? So what I propose and what I wanted to add to the conversation among the, the product design community is some kind of framework that we can look at and say, ah, if we are designing for customer engagement, where is our product deficient? What's missing in the user flow that's not making it engaging enough? Is our trigger uh, not clear enough? Is the action too difficult? Is the reward not rewarding? Is the investment too much? Or you know, are we not asking enough for the investment phase? So asking yourself these, fundam these fundamental questions of the hook model can save you a ton of time, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that doesn't need to be wasted uh, simply by running your product through this model. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's definitely something I come across a lot too, is people saying there's so many different things we could be testing, but like we have to pick which test and how do we do that? Um, and so I love that you have a framework that you can look at each of these elements and see which one is the most efficient. You know, what should we work on? Um, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more. Um, I find, uh, I also talk a lot about finding the, the customer or the user's pain and, um, you know, addressing that pain, solving that pain, driving them towards the outcome they want. Um, but it's definitely one of the areas that I do notice sometimes people ask, well, is that really the only thing that drives people? Um, you know, don't they, don't they seek things without pain? And, and I'm, nope. I want to hear more about <laughs> why you say that. <laughs> well, what, what do you think? I have, I have a very strong opinion on this, but you want me to go first uh, or you want me to go first? Um, I mean, I can tell you, you know, my perspective is, is kind of that, uh, anything that you think is somebody driving for something they aspire to is there's still a pain about whatever's lacking. Like there's still, mm. I want to be seen as successful. I want that connection because I'm lonely. You know, there's still a pain there. Um, right. But, uh, but I, I, I don't put it in psychologist terms the way you do. So tell me more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I totally agree. So, so there used to be this idea that came from Freud called the pleasure principle, which says that human motivation is driven by the desire to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Bunk. It's not true. <laughs> Turns out uh, that what, what we know now from modern neuroscience is that it's pain all the way down, that all human behavior is driven by what's called the homeostatic response, that we seek escape from discomfort. So think about it physiologically, right? So uh, you go outside, it's cold, you put on a coat because it feels uncomfortable to be cold. Uh, you go back inside, now you're hot, that doesn't feel good, you take your coat off. Uh, you're hungry, right? That You feel hunger pangs, you eat, you're stuffed. Oh, that's too much. You stop. So those are physiological sensations and actions we take to stop those uncomfortable physiological states. The same exact thing is true when it comes to psychological states, right? So we talked about earlier how, you know, you're lonely, you go on Facebook, you're bored, you check the news, Reddit, whatever. Everything we do, everything we do is to quell an uncomfortable sensation. And so it doesn't make sense to think, to look for uh, states when the customer isn't in pain. I'll, I'll give you a great example. Um, I was on a transcon flight and I was sitting in the aisle seat and uh, across from me, uh, across from, from me in the aisle, there was a gentleman who was sleeping and it was very clear he was sleeping. I mean, he had a pillow, you know, tucked under his neck and he had his blanket pulled up to his chin and the flight attendant came by and she said to him, sir, and he didn't wake up. And so she says it again. She says a little louder. She says, sir. And again, he's, this guy's, you know, stone cold out, you know, he's out. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and everybody can see it. But so, she, but she doesn't wake up. And so she says it even louder. She says, "Sir," and he wakes up. He says, whoa, 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 what is it? And she says, "Sir, would you like a drink?" And so, <laughs> what? A terrific example, right? And we do this all the time. We're like, "Oh, that's so rude. Why would the flight attendant do that?" We do this to our users all the time. We send them these notifications all goddamn day on our schedule as opposed to their schedule. And mm-hmm. all it takes, the reason companies do this and the reason it's so annoying and people are, are pissed off at us in the product design community is because we don't even consider their internal triggers. Don't send an external trigger when the customer, the user doesn't feel the pain to need your product. So with a few minutes of introspection of, hey, when do they feel the internal trigger? That's when you want to send the external trigger. The moment they're most likely to feel that discomfort, that's when they're most likely to respond to an external trigger you send. So send these external triggers on their schedule, not on your schedule. Uh, And and that's why it's so important to, to, to find the pain, right? If a customer is not in pain, leave them alone. They're good, right? It's like the guy on the airplane. He's sleeping. He's happy. Leave him alone. Would he like a drink? Yes, but not right then when he's sleeping. He wants the drink when he's thirsty, when he's in discomfort. So that's why I, I want product designers to not think about the pleasure. It's about the pain. It's always about the, 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 the seeking to satiate discomfort. Mm-hmm. That's a really good example. Um, it's easy to sort of nod along and go, yeah, why would you wake him up for that? <laughs> exactly. Um, but then, of course, the, the flight attendant, um, you know, she had uh, the ability to see that he was sleeping, right? And yeah. our, uh, typically our product designers are um, not in the same room as the person using the product. So tell me more about how they, how can they tell, how can they, how can they design the product to know when the internal trigger will be there or when the discomfort will be there and not yeah. when it won't. Absolutely. So some of it is some common sense stuff, right? Some of it is actually sitting down and, and most people have not done this is seek, sitting down and saying, you know, when and where is my user when they would most likely feel the internal trigger. So you've got to define what that internal trigger is, right? Is it boredom, loneliness, anxiety, fatigue, uncertainty? What is it that they're feeling that your product will satiate for them, right? What's the itch that you're going to scratch? That's the first step. And then ask yourself, when and where are they when they're most likely to feel the sensation? Uh, you know, Trello. So when are you most likely to have some, a task that you fear forgetting unless you put it on Trello. Is it first thing in the morning when you get to your desk? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good hypothesis, right? That's when you know, you're starting to get your day together. I gotta do this, I gotta do that. Maybe that's a good time to set an external trigger. Well, how do you know someone's in the office? Well, you know, there's some obvious stuff like you know, time of day. Uh, there's also all kinds of things we can ask in terms of permission uh, to, to, to collect data on when they're most likely to need our product. You know, we can look at their calendar information. We can look at geolocation information. We can look at all kinds of stuff if we ask, of course, in the appropriate way and we're fully transparent about it. And it's a way that, you know, enhances the product's use and the customer knows why we're asking for it. You know, these are some simple things that we can do to, to ascertain when users are most likely to need these, these products by understanding when are they going to feel this internal trigger. Yeah. All of a sudden you're making me wish that it actually did prompt me. Like uh, for me, it's the end of the day is the big one too. It's like, oh, I'm going to go home. I got to write these things down and come back to it tomorrow. Yeah. Like, yeah, wow. exactly. So, and a lot of it is, is trial and error, right? I don't want to give anybody the impression that, hey, just build your hook model. You're going to get it right the first time. You still have to build, measure, learn, right? You, I'm still a big proponent of the lean startup methodology. You still have to iterate, but you have to iterate with the right questions in mind. You might discover, oh, you know, we thought it was the morning. That's when you feel these internal triggers. Actually, it's on the way home from work, right? Uh, which, which 
it, which helps inform the product. This is why understanding the internal trigger is so important because it's not some marketing veneer that we put on top of the product after it's built. No, no, no. It defines what is the product, right? So for example, if you heard, if Trello heard that like you, you know, customers uh, on their way home from work, that's when they have this fear of forgetting something that they, wanna, that they don't want to forget. Well, then maybe what you want to do is to design a voice activated app that you could use in the car without crashing into somebody, right? There's all kinds of things that you could develop. It informs the features that you build into the product based on the internal trigger that you're trying to scratch. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, it's been kind of fun to walk through it with my own case and with Trello. I'm curious to hear about, are there cases out there that you've witnessed, like since you put the book out into the world, that you're really proud to see like, oh, they're using the hooked model for good. Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking this question. This is my, this is my brag board. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, there, there's tons of companies and I'm so, I'm, I'm so excited that uh, so many of them have, uh, have used this model for good. I mean, I'm, the, the thing that's top of mind right now is the, the, the news of Anchor. Anchor just yesterday announced that uh, they've been bought by Spotify, and that's a company that I invested in. And the, uh, they actually reached out and told me they were using their hook model. And, and I, I just, you know, I was so excited for them. And, and uh, I invested, what, like two and a half, three years ago now uh, when they were just getting started. So that's one example. They're revolutionizing the podcasting space, and they just had a, a beautiful exit by Spotify. Uh, another company I invested in called Kahoot is uh, the largest education software in the world. It's a Norwegian company that just went public a few months ago. Uh, they're making the classroom more engaging, more habit-forming, more fun, which is terrific. I have a, I have a soft spot for, for education. I have a 10-year-old kid, and I, I know how unbelievably boring education is today, or at least you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the typical model of a teacher standing in front of a class and you know, wah, 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 you know, teaching them by just lecture. So there, you know, Kahoot is a software that's making teachers' lives easier. It's making kids educational experience, more habit forming, more engaging, which is awesome. Uh, there's a company called Paga, which is a client of mine. They are a company based in, in Nigeria and they are um, bringing millions of people who have been previously unbanked, right? People who uh, don't meet the threshold to have a banking account. They are using this habit forming technology to help people finally become banked through this online app. Uh, and they're, they're just doing unbelievably well. They're changing. They're really changing people's lives for good. They're empowering people to finally, you know, save money in a way they've never been, uh, that's never been possible before. Uh, so that's amazing. I've worked with them on their hook model. Uh, there's a company uh, that I did invest in, but, but I actually used and reached out to called Fitbod. Uh, and, and, and I've tried every health and diet app out there because, you know, they all claim to change habits and, and most of them are awful. In fact, I wrote an article a few years ago called why your fitness app is making you fat. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty hard on the industry in general, but I found this app called Fitbot and I just loved it. It actually changed my workout habits. And I, I was so impressed and I thought, wow, this is, this is really good. I mean, th- there's a hook model in here. And so I called them uh, and they say, oh, Nirael, hooked. We actually read your book like three years ago and we designed the product based on your hook. And I, I didn't even have any contact with them. They just you know, bought the book and used it and they're doing amazingly well. They're profitable and, and doing great. Uh, so the list goes on and on. I mean, I've, I've invested in these companies. I've taught these companies and many companies I've never heard from. They just read the book, but I get an occasional you know, uh, message on Twitter or, or, or Facebook that says, you know, we're, using, we're using the hook model, which is terrific. So it's really been in, in all sorts of industries, I, I, you know, it's across industries, across functions. And it's, it's been terrific to see uh, these habits being, these, these habit forming techniques used for good. 
Yeah, that is so wonderful to hear. Um, I personally, I've worked a bit in uh, wellness and I'm always amazed at, I mean, to be honest, there's a lot of people who've been in wellness for a long time that maybe haven't caught up with the latest in, in behavioral science and behavioral economics. And I'm kind of curious to hear uh, what you think, like, why, why, why are fitness apps making you fat? Like, what, why are they not using the hook to model? What's the challenge here? Yeah, so, so okay, so this is this article I wrote a few years back, but uh, the, the basic gist of it uh, is that they don't provide variable rewards, they provide variable punishments. So what do I mean by that? So uh, many fitness apps, you know, they're, they're, the founder's heart is in the right place. I see this a lot with other apps that are trying to do altruistic things like uh, help people save money, right? And the problem is that most of these apps, uh, every time you use them, they say, hey, guess what, buddy? You're still broke and you're still fat. And they, they don't give you a sense of progress. They don't give you a variable reward. They just tell you what is the current state, but there's no variable reward. It's a variable punishment. And when people feel punished, they do what all of us do. They stop, right? They, they delete the app and say, screw you. I hate this product. <laughs> and so even though your heart's in the right place when you design these products, if you don't consider the hook model, if you don't build it appropriately, and this doesn't mean you know cheesy gamification techniques like points and badges and leaderboards. I hate all that stuff uh, for the most part. What it does mean is, is figuring out genuinely what is the customer's itch? What do they really want? So for example, take, take Fitbod. What they do really well they are they try to to they, to scratch this very particular itch you know when i talk to a lot of companies that are trying to help people live better lives right so they you know i'll talk to a fitness company or or a, a, a bank that's trying to help people save money and i say what's the habit what's the discrete behavior that you want people to do with little or no conscious thought they'll say we want people to live a money conscious lifestyle or we want people to form a habit of eating right well, that's not a habit. That's an aspiration, right? A habit is a discrete behavior. Think, you know, opening an app, scrolling a feed, pushing the play button, very simple actions. So FitBod didn't try and, you know, make this very overarching uh, highfalutin aspiration. They had a very discrete internal trigger. The internal trigger was the uncertainty you feel when you get to the gym and don't know what to do, okay? Mm. So it's for the kind of person who's in the gym, who gets there is like, uh, there's a bunch of meatheads all over the place and they look like they know what they're doing. And meanwhile, I'm standing here in everybody's way and I have no clue. So what they did is to give, to just scratch that itch, the action. So when you get to the gym, you feel that internal trigger, that uncertainty of what am I supposed to do? The action is to open the app and the app has pre-populated the exact exercise you should do. So what exercise, how much weight you should lift and how many repetitions you should do. Like just do what the app tells you. No thinking involved, right? This is where the habit, something done with little or no conscious thought really comes in handy. Just do what the app tells you. The variable reward is of course finding out what should I do, what exercises and also how many can I do, right? Is can I do what the app tells me to do? That's there's variability, there's uncertainty, there's mystery there. The investment is every time I do those reps, I'm putting in, I'm entering data into the app to tell the app, you know, how, how well I did compared to what the app assigned me. Did I do the right repetition? Did I do the, the assigned number of repetitions at the right weight? You know, all that stuff. So that the next time, the next day, the, the, the app uses that data to build my next workout. 
So for example, if I do one exercise that works out one muscle group, it knows that already and says, well, don't do that, ex that, that muscle group today because it's already, you know, you exercised it yesterday. I want you to work out a different muscle group. So it knows that automatically. So in this way, it becomes essential for the user. It becomes a habit. Now I'm invested in the service because it became better and better uh, with use and I'm storing value the more I use it. So, so it's a really nice hook. I think they've done a, a really nice job with it. Yeah, that sounds great. I, uh, it reminds me too, I was talking to somebody about um, wellness behaviors and they told me about their Garmin app and they had a similar story. I don't know if you're familiar with the Garmin app, but they were doing running and it was telling them, you know, what, uh, what running routine to use. And they said, I felt like I was a pro at my running routine. And when I told my, uh, my friend, who's a competitive runner, he does like triathlon, what my routine was, he actually said, wow, that's, that's a pretty solid plan. And, and this person said to me, I, it made me feel like an expert. And I was like, yeah. yeah, very cool. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Like, so, so understanding this very discreet behaviors is, is really critical. That's, that's a common mistake that people try and like chew off you know, way more than, the, than they're capable of doing in one discrete habit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something so much smaller than that aspirational, like live a money conscious life or. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, that's amazing. Um, well, another thing that I wanted to ask you about while I have you is um, the regret test. So uh, I remember reading an article you wrote about that and, um, and I thought it was pretty pretty helpful. Um, and so I'm curious if you could tell us a little more about how that came to be and, and how you uh, teach it. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for many years, I struggled with the ethics of how to use this stuff. And so be, before I wrote Hooked, I, I had, a, 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 you know, there's a, a chapter in the book called The Morality of Manipulation. So I've, I've always thought about ethics and it's, it's, it's always been part of, of kind of the curriculum that I'm teaching out there. Uh, and so there's always been this, this morality test for you as an individual designer. And that's, that's what I put in hooked, which is this very simple two-part test. Let me go through that first and then I'll go into the regret test. So the, the, the two-part test in the morality of manipulation uh, chapter asks you as an individual designer, if you want to know, are you applying these techniques ethically, then you have to ask yourself two questions. The first question is, does this product materially improve people's lives? So you have to look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself this question, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? Uh, and that's not something you know, for you to judge others and others to judge you. No, no, this is just you to judge yourself. Is this materially improving people's lives? But that's not good enough. There's another test I want you to pass. And that test is I, I want you to break the first rule of drug dealing. Do you know the first rule of drug dealing by chance? No. The first, I don't know why you would, but the first rule <laughs> of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. Never get high. Ah, and yes. so I want people to break that rule by asking themselves the second question, which is, am I the user? And so if and only if you answer in the affirmative to both those questions, yes, I'm building something that materially improves people's lives. And yes, I am the user. Then you are what I call a facilitator. Okay. Then you can apply these techniques for good. Now, that doesn't mean there might be unforeseen negative consequences. This always happens, right? That, you know, what Paul Varillo said, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. So there, there many times are unforeseen consequences. But I think you are on the ethical side, the right side of the ethical spectrum when you are building a product that you yourself use and that you uh, believe materially improves people's lives. Why? Because if there are any deleterious consequences to using the product, you're going to be the first person to know about it. 
So that was this manipulation matrix uh, that I put in, in the book Hook. But then I got this question of, okay, well, well, that's my personal test, but what do we do on a team, right? What do we do if somebody, like, well, what if my boss wants to use one of these design techniques and I think that they're using them for coercion as opposed to persuasion? We talked about that in the very beginning of, of our conversation, how persuasion is helping people do things they, things they want to do. Coercion is getting them to do things they don't want to do. So what if my boss, you know, looks at one of these techniques and says, you know, and, and finds what's called a dark pattern uh, that gets people to do something they didn't want to do. So what, what do I do then? And so that's why I came up with this regret test. And this, you know, I looked, I looked for all these um, mantras that we use in the design community uh, as, as an ethical guide. So the first thing that came up that a lot of people referred me to was Google's uh, slogan of don't be evil. I don't even know if they use it anymore. I don't think it's their official slogan anymore, but it used to be don't be evil. But that's so squishy, right? What is, what is evil? That's a, that's, a, that's a very subjective term. Like that's not really defined anywhere. And so you can weasel your way out and say, oh, it's not really evil, is it? So I didn't like that. That, that wasn't a high enough bar. Uh, the next thing that I came to was the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that doesn't really fit either because who says that your way is the right way, right? What if you're okay with something being done to you, but your user is not? Well, then, you know, what makes you the arbiter of, of what should be done to your user? That's not a very good test uh, either. Then uh, I came across this idea of, well, disclosure, right? If we just tell people what's being done to them, if we, if they, if, if we, you know, put in writing uh, and disclose what's going to happen, well, then that's, that's enough. But I don't think that's enough because what that leads to is what we see today, these terms of service agreements that nobody reads and companies know that nobody reads. There's actually, there was a, 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 some, some jokester at a, a gaming company put into a terms of service agreement uh, you know, I agree to sell my mortal soul to Satan forever. And, and, and he wanted to see if anybody saw it. And, you know, of course, out of thousands and thousands of people, like one person wrote in and said, what the hell is this? You know, so, so these companies know that nobody reads this agreement. So that's not ethical. That's not good enough either. That's just a, a cover your ass move. Mm -hmm. So here's what I came up with. What I came up with was the regret test. And the regret test says, you know, back to this idea that persuasion is helping people do things that they want to do. Coercion is getting people to do things they don't want to do. The way we tell the difference between persuasion and coercion is regret. So if you use my product, if you did what I designed for you to do, are you sorry that you used it? Are you sorry you, you went through the design pattern that I designed for you? That's the test is regret. And the beauty of this is that we can test this just like we would test Anything else we do when it comes to UX, right? We bring a bunch of people into a room and we, you know, we individually, we show them a design pattern, we show them a user flow and we see if they can get through it, right? We see what they think about it. That is a very well-known technique that, uh, around user testing that we've been doing for ages. So if, if you come to a situation, what I, what I want the industry to adopt is this method for if there's a questionable tactic. If somebody says, hey, we should totally use this, this technique that is a potential dark pattern, somebody in the room raises their hand and says, you know, I think we should probably run a regret test on this. What's a regret test? Well, we bring a bunch of people in a room, we sit them down, and we say, hey, here's what just happened. Here's what you just did, okay? And assuming that they know everything we know, so we have to disclose right then and there, here's everything that I, as the designer, know that you just did. Okay, fully transparent. Now that I'm telling you what just happened, do you regret what, just, what you just did? That's a regret test. And this is something we can absolutely run in the confines of a UX lab. That, that we know how to do this. 
And so now I don't think we'll have to do this very much because this has a chilling effect on using dark patterns. Because when someone raises their hand and say, I think we should probably run a regret test on that and then explains what the regret test is, meaning does the user regret doing the behavior we designed for them to do if they knew everything we knew, that's what the regret test requirement is, that has a chilling effect. The boss then says, hmm, I'm not really sure we should do this then, <laughs> right? So 99% of the potential dark patterns out there won't ever have to really be tested because people will see obviously, right? That that's, this is not gonna pass the regret test. But if it's a question, and if you have one side that says, no, people will totally love this. And the other side of the table says, no, I don't think they will. I think they're gonna regret it. Well, test it, run a regret test. And as long as if people are happy to do the technique, if they're like, oh yeah, I fully expected that and that sounds great and improve my experience, then, then, then go for it. Because what we find is it's not the behavior design tactic, right? People like to point fingers and say, well, you know, that this behavioral design tactic is bad. For example, uh, one tech critic uh, likes to hate on Snapchat because they use the streaks technique, right? The streaks technique is basically so, you know, you, you, if you use the app every day, you get a little check mark and the more, you know, if you, you, don't, you don't want to break the chain. You want to keep using the app every single day. And in that context, you know, the critics say, oh, you know, they're, they're hijacking teenagers brain by this, by this technique. Well, so, so is that technique a dark pattern? Not really. Uh, my friends over at Duolingo use the exact same technique and they've been using it for longer than Snapchat to help people learn a language. The difference is which one do you regret? The difference is which one enhances your life versus which one controls your life. And we can ask people this because at the end of the day, it's not only an ethical imperative, right? Let me be very clear. This isn't about goody two shoes, you know, passing some kind of ethical test. I think that's a good thing, but you know, a lot of times people need brass tacks. They need to know, well, how does this affect our bottom line? The fact is you can't keep screwing people over for very long, right? If people don't like using your product, if people feel bad after they use your product, you know what they do? They use it less or they quit, right? And mm -hmm. so we want to prevent that. We want people to use our products for forever, hopefully, right? But we have to, do, in order to do that, you have to give them a good value exchange. They have to want to use your product as opposed to regretting having used your product. Yeah, that that is... That is awesome. I um, am reminded, uh, I read this amazing article today by Tim O'Reilly. I don't know if, uh, if you would have seen it yet. It, um, it's about the blitz scaling and um, two-sided marketplaces and uh, companies that start cannibalizing themselves because they've reached such a scale, but then they can start um, not, uh, not servicing both sides of the marketplace anymore. And I'm thinking about, well, I guess if, if inside those companies, like for example, Google um, has a growing number of um, no-click search results where people are just satisfied from the page itself and they don't need to go anywhere. But I'm thinking, what if you apply the regret test to both sides, like to the contributor and the, um, the user, the end user? And, and you know, eventually you, you would have to imagine that the, um, the content creators that are creating the content that gets used by Google without ever going to their own site would, would, you know, if they knew that was going to happen, they would stop doing it. They would regret that, that, you know, somebody in there, if they said, I will this pass the regret test, would hopefully say no, because yeah. it's not good for their bottom line in the end, if they don't, you know, right. And, and look I out for it. It's better to know that sooner rather than later, because it's going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what's so important about this regret test. People will eventually figure out what you're doing 
and say, this sucks, right? I'll give you, I'll give you an example that happened to me a couple weeks ago. Um, I, I, I had a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, the, the paper subscription, and I wanted to cancel it. Uh, and to sign up, it was incredibly easy. You go online, like three click, clicks later, you've got a subscription coming. I don't even think you have to put in your credit card information. It's like literally just give us your address and you're going to start getting the, the Wall Street Journal and we'll bill you later. Super easy. It took me 30 seconds. That's not how easy it is to cancel. <laughs> so if you uh -huh. try to cancel, I mean, I, I had to call this 1-800 number between the hours of like 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. You know, you get on the phone and you have wait music and then somebody gets on the phone and says, how can I help you? And then they try and sell you for literally half an hour of, you know, what if we offered you this? And what if we offered that? Like, no, I just want to cancel. God damn it. So they used a technique called a roach motel. This is a known dark pattern called a roach motel. People come in, nobody goes out. Uh, but if I would have known that it was this difficult to cancel, I would have never signed up. I regretted doing business with this company. And now here I am telling everybody, don't do business with the Wall Street Journal because it's impossible to cancel, right? So in this day and age, if you screw people over, if you make a product that people regret using, guess what? Not only are they going to stop doing business with you, they're going to tell all their friends to stop doing business with you. So isn't it better to know that they would regret a design pattern early now in, in, in the confines of a UX lab versus later when it's out in the market and they tell everybody how much you suck. Absolutely. So that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of business case making that a lot of the product managers I work with need help with, you know, cause they're like, in oh my gut, this doesn't feel right, but how do I convince the boss? That's how, that's how that's going to, it's, it's going to come back and bite us no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, we're almost out of time and I have really loved this conversation. Um, I always like to ask people at the end, just, um, final words of advice for, you know, the product leaders, the startup founders, the, the designers, um, that are out there. Um, what, what will you tell the ones who are trying to, trying to make a bigger impact? Yeah. Oh, this is a, this is a great question. Um, you know, I think, I think the best, well, some of the best advice I ever heard was, is build for you. Um, that, you know, especially when it comes to the startup community, I know a lot of folks out there work for small companies that they're, you know, they bet on personally, you know, they, maybe they took a, a, a pay cut on in terms of their cash compensation so they could make it big, you know, with some kind of big equity payout at some state, uh, at, some, at some future state. And, I, you know, I made this mistake earlier in my career where I, uh, I started a company because I saw a great financial opportunity. And I think that's a really bad reason uh, to do anything professionally if it's just for a financial payout that, um, you know, for in particular, when it comes to startups, that if, if, if you're building a startup or working at a startup to get rich, uh, then you're just bad at math because the odds are not in your favor, right? <laughs> the, the chances of yes. hitting big with a startup are so minuscule that you're just bad at math if that's your reason. How, the, the real reason should be that you are building something that you yourself see value in, that you yourself want. I see way too many people, and I made this mistake, so I'm pointing the finger at myself here, you know, go into ad tech. Well, are you, have you ever been a customer of an ad tech product? You know, could you see how it improves your life? Nah, not really, but you know, the benefits are great. That's a shitty reason, right? Like, you should build a product that you yourself see value in because in that case, you can't fail. Right? If you build something that you find personally useful, then even if the company is not financially successful, the worst case scenario is that you worked on a product that benefits you. Right? That, that means something, that you built something that you find personally valuable to you. That product is now in the world and you helped bring it to fruition. I think that's a much better 
uh, imperative than just saying, oh, you know, this sounds like a good financial opportunity and, you know, they might hit it big. That's, that's not good enough. It should be, you know, build something that you yourself want to see in the world. That's awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Nir. I really appreciate it. And um, we uh, will share this soon, uh, ironically, through Anchor. Um, <laughs> so, <Awesome. laughs> yep, another company using the Hooked model. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. And I, I hope to talk to you again. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Nir Ayal as much as I did. If you'd like to find Nir online, you can find him on Twitter at Nir Ayal, N-I-R-E-Y-A-L, or on the web at nearandfar.com. That's N-I-R-A-N-D-F-A-R.com. So this episode with Nir was the final interview for this season, season one of the Product Science Podcast. I've had such a fantastic time talking with all of these wonderful guests, learning more from them, and uh, interacting with the audience, uh, hearing stories from people, talking to people who have enjoyed listening and have learned from it. I wanted to share with you that at East Shore Product Science, we run lots of workshops and we'd love to have you join us. We teach the product science method, a step-by-step -step process for evaluating product opportunities and laying the foundations for high growth product development. We help product leaders and startup founders identify the right products and features to build and develop the support to do so. We do this at private workshops. We also do it at public workshops, both in person and online. If you'd like to learn more, check it out at h2rproductscience.com workshops. So this was the final interview for season one, but we will be back next week with some clips and takeaways from the whole season. Um, so join us for one more week and then we'll take a break over the summer and we'll be back in the fall with an exciting roster of guests for season two. The first of us might be somebody who was mentioned in this episode. I'm very excited. I hope you have an amazing summer. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.